Daniel chapter 5, verse 13 through 30. Daniel interprets the handwriting. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I've heard of you that the spirits of the gods is in you, and the light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they cannot show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said to the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the God, the, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship, greatness, glory, and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets it over whom he will. And you, son of Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you, your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them and have praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and who are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence, the hand sent and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mean, mean, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mean, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Thank you, Caroline. Good morning. That's the passage that we're going to be studying today. We've been going through the book of Daniel. I titled the message today, Ignoring Warning Signs. I thought I'd begin by telling you about a little routine that I go through often when I go to the gym and work out. Every gym I've ever been at, they have a, they have a scale somewhere. And you go there and you, you, you're, you're trying to be fit and you see it over there, you go and you stand on it to see how you're doing right. 
And there's a particular number that you might be thinking about, right? And it used to be this, I hope it's that. And the number comes up and the vast majority of the time recently, I, I've been left wanting, you know, and I was measured and the measurement didn't come up to what I would want it to be. Now, that is what I want you to think about for today, because that entire passage that Caroline just read is going to lead us up to a point where this King Belshazzar is going to be measured and found wanting. Only it's not this kind of weight. It's going to be in here who he is as a king and a leader and where he has taken the nation, and he's going to fall short of God's uh, measurement of him. That's where we're headed today in our message, and where we left off last week was... There was this wild party, and at the party, a hand appeared in the air and wrote something on the wall. It alarmed him. It scared him. They, they, they tried the interpretation, couldn't find it, and they brought Daniel in. And so as we're going through this, this is what I want us to remember. Because last week, the emphasis was on watching for these warning signs. And we, we uh, said that, what was written on the wall ultimately was that something bad was about to happen. And the signs from last week, presence of God's agent or his voice in that culture had diminished because Daniel, he's not the chief anymore. He used to be high in, in command. Now he's somewhere in, in the lower echelons of the, of the uh, we don't even know where, but he used to speak God's voice into, at the leadership level. It's been pressed back. There's a shift in the values of the Babylonian culture, where one of the things we saw out of the leadership in the party was a moral decay, perhaps, in that it was a drunken orgy with a, with a, a measure of sensuality built into it, this public spectacle that, that the per previous king we've been studying never went to. There was a freedom of speech and religion that was diminished because you see them directly thumbing their nose at the Jewish God of Daniel, desecrating their holy artifacts they brought out of the vault, and this kind of pride that didn't exist before that pointed their finger towards God. This is indicating a shift in that culture, okay? So that leads us to today. Look at the picture. I keep going back to this. This is Babylon. The Jews have been pulled out of it. They're living there as exiles. And Babylon is trying to make them Babylonian. Babylon has their own distinct belief and faith and religion and values and, and boundary lines when it comes to morality that is distinct from and different than the Jews who have been brought in. And they want to make them Babylonian. That's the great challenge, to live in a culture that is where our faith or Christianity, I, I could say, is not the dominant culture. And we have to figure out how do we live in that. Babylon's a great book for us because we get a peek at that. Now, um, what is Daniel going to do? And what can we learn from it? And the first point that I have for you today out of this text that was read is to have patience in the face of decay. Patience in the face of decay. It is obvious the signs are there that there is a, a decay in the culture. In fact, it's led to the point where there's going to be judgment. I mean, the scene last week was there's this wild party going on in the loins of the, of the city where if he went out on, the, on the, the top of that wall, remember this great wall, four chariots could ride across it side by side. That's how big it was. 
And encamped outside that wall is a foreign army ready to take them over. And yet they have this pride on the inside. What, is, what has this, this judgment? Why is God doing this? And the answer is because the decay is reaching a point that God says, I need to change this. He's going to judge them. The prophet Jeremiah actually prophesies this in the same way that he said, I'm going to raise up Babylon to judge Israel because they are sinning. Now he says, I'm going to raise up the Medes and the Persians and they will judge Babylon. So here's what we see with Daniel. Being patient in the face of decay, first of all, he's waiting on the world to fail. In other words, he, he used to be in a position of influence. It's taken away. And now he needs to be in this waiting mode because he's going to be asked. He's going to be asked for help. And, there, and, and, and underneath this point is, is the thought that when you have people that imbibe values that are bankrupt, eventually when it falls short, they can be brought before your path by God's divine um, organization so that we can help or speak into their life. And this is what is happening to Daniel. It says in verse 13, it says, Then Daniel was brought in before the king. Verse 17, Then Daniel answered. So he is being called upon. He, and, and the way I kind of think about this is right now, there could be on island a marriage in trouble. And you don't know about them. And yet, in the future, maybe even a year from now, two years from now, they're in the beginning stages of trouble. They might come across your path. And so, there's, in a sense, we need to understand that built into regular life, God, there's, there's like a judgment that's built in to walking in ways that are outside the counsel of God. If you choose to involve yourself in multiple illicit relationships, it can affect your marriage. If you make those choices to go outside, it's, it's kind of built in. It's part of the DNA of God's design. And so we knowing this, the counsel of God says, live this way, do it this way. People who walk outside of that, it's going to fail. And God can bring them into our path to speak God's counsel into their life. Daniel, what do we do when we see culture decaying? The first thing I say is sometimes be patient and wait as it fails this is what will happen. And it's failing. Why? Failure because they have placed their hope in bankrupt values. In verse 15, as it was read, it says, The wise men, the enchanters, have been brought before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. Time and again, they've gone to the, the wisdom of the world, and it can't give them the answer that they need. The answer is beyond men. The answer is something that comes from the divine. And earlier in the book, they even made that attestation. It, it, the answer to this does not walk with the flesh. They said it's from the gods. And so we see that, that there's going to be failure because of this, because of putting hope in bankrupt values. And also failure because they're going to face consequences and judgment. There's going to be sometimes that built-in uh, consequence. But even God, like this is divinely orchestrated, where there's an army outside the wall that they are going to face consequences and they're going to call for help. People will ask for help because of those two reasons. And we need to wait because of that. 
they have numbed themselves with pleasure, wine, and women, sensuality. They're not even aware until it's too late. And then suddenly they see this hand and their attention is brought back and they call for help. And we need to wait and be ready. Um, I also put here patience in the face of decay. Daniel was not only waiting on the world to fail, but he's waiting with no joy in wickedness. And I get this from a couple things. If you look down in verse 17, it says, Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself. There's a way in which he's not enticed by what that world has to offer him. Daniel is not going to be a guy who finds himself comfortable in the presence of the wickedness of this king, the level that he took it to. He's not comfortable. And, and here it is, I need you to help me and I'll give you pleasures out of my world. And he says, you can keep him for yourself. He takes no joy in that entire setting and what comes out of that. And I also want to point out a, a, a contrast between how Daniel interacted with king number one in the story, which is Nebuchadnezzar, and king number two, Belshazzar. Just think about this. King number one, Daniel sees the interpretation of the dream and for one hour is alarmed. Oh my word. Oh my goodness. The king had to come and say to him, look, I know you're alarmed, but don't be frightened. Just tell me what it is. Because Daniel knows it's bad and he didn't want to tell him. And then it's, as he tells them, and he gets to the end and he pleads with him, you've got to stop sinning. You've got to stop these things. And he, he pleads for him to make better choices so he doesn't face God's judgment. And yet king number two, how is his response? You get to the end and he says to him, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. <laughs> it's like cold. It's here, here's the interpretation. He sees it. He doesn't have to be alarmed for an entire hour. There's some, some contrast here between how he related to these two different kings. And he took no joy in the level that the wickedness had grown in Babylon. Now, I was thinking about an illustration here uh, from the Bible. Lot, Lot lived in one of the worst cities ever. It was so bad, God's judgment wiped the city off the face of the earth. And you get to the New Testament, it, it has this verse about Lot. It says that the, that the righteousness of Lot was vexed by the city, that his spirit, there was a righteous spirit in Lot. And somehow he lived in this, this tidal wave of wickedness, and he was able to wall himself off, that he, he kept himself like in the closet, and he, he kept that righteousness there. And when he went out, it was hard for him because the city was so wicked, but he had no impact, no impact. I talked about that one or two sermons ago, that if he had had an impact, maybe he would have saved Sodom. He only needed to find 10, only 10 more righteous people. You couldn't even reach 10 people. And yet this is what it's like to live in Babylon, where we could find ourselves in the face of wickedness in such a way that it, it troubles us. Or does it not? I'm going to come back to that later, but I, I was thinking about a real-life example 
when my older boys were in high school, one of them says, Dad, I want to watch this movie. I've heard it's really good. It's an action movie. I'm like, all right, okay. Uh, we, we were going to put it on. I didn't look it up. A lot of times I do. But in the first few minutes, there was just too many F-bombs for me. I said, hold on a second. This is like, hold on. And I looked it up. I'm like, do you realize this is saying that there's like 350 F-words in this movie? And I just said to them, that's too much for me. I just, I don't want to sit there and have to hear that. And I was like, we took it off. We found a different movie. Like, is there a line like that? When, when you get into Babylon, that is going to be one of the challenges for us as Christians. Where is the line? I'm going to come back to that at the end. But for now, I want you to see that within Daniel, that while he waited, he's watching the decay of the city. He took no joy in the wickedness. Now, the next thing I noticed is this, that he's waiting with integrity that isn't valued. The people around him, you know what? The people around him, they saw, we already looked at it last week, right? They saw uh, very good at his job, highly intelligent, specific skill set to his job that was very good. I mean, the resume is like five star. I mean, why would you not want to keep him at least in some level where he can use that to make you better, Belshazzar? But, but not. We, we get to the story and it's like he's obscure now. It's like the wife has to come in and say, hey, there's this guy, Daniel, 20 years ago. He was good. And so my thoughts about this there's a couple. Number one, because why, why didn't integrity matter? And, and, and I'm going to push this back because onto you, you can have integrity. And sometimes when you live in Babylon, they won't care about the integrity because of a couple things. Number one, because the values you have will not match theirs. The values you have will not match theirs. They won't want you working in the company because there's views you have that they don't like. And you, you see this through the context of what is happening, Daniel's faith is derided. I mean, there's derision targeting his God. Get, get the artifacts that symbolize your God, bring them out, we're going to desecrate them and thumb our nose at your God. So you can see already that his values, his, his faith and who he was, they didn't hold that. They didn't. This is a far cry from Nebuchadnezzar who said, yeah, I'm number one, but I'm still kind of tolerant. He always spoke in this kind of language that every, every tongue, every language, every people, he spoke with diversity built into how he addressed everyone. There was a recognition of that diversity. And I want to I connect some dots for you here because why is, does his integrity not matter? Even through the text, later on, he says... I know who you are, Daniel. You're one of those exiles. And I, I, the dot I'm, I'm going to connect is this, this, maybe this is the beginning, but there's going to be a growing increase of tribalism within Babylon. Where it used to be, Babylon is number one, but there's all these the diversity of people. Now it's like, we're Babylon, you're a Jew. We recognize you as being a Jew. When you get to verse 30, it says, And Darius the Mede received the kingdom. Do you know who Darius' son is? Xerxes. 
Do you know there's another Bible story that has Xerxes in it? Anyone know what it is? The book of Esther. And when you read the book of Esther, do you know what happens in the book of Esther? In the book of Esther, there's a political plot to wipe out all the Jews. How do you go from accepting of diversity to within a generation or two, enough people in the kingdom thinks it's okay to have genocide? How? And the dot I connect is this growing anti-Semitism within Babylon. So Daniel's watching the decay of Babylon, and he's, 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 he's living in a moment where even his own people increasingly they're looked down upon. I know you, Daniel, you're the Jew. We're Babylon. Used to be Babylon wants to make the Jew like Babylon. Now it's like separate. Doesn't matter if he has a five-star resume, he's a Jew. Doesn't matter how good he is at his job because his values and the God he serves, we deride and we don't like. This is Daniel waiting, watching the decay, and this is what's going on around him. Also waiting for God to move. Now, I want you to notice this point. In verse 12, I'm going back to last week. It says, Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar, now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Now, you know what my point is? Here's the point. He wasn't around when the hand appeared and wrote on the wall. You know what else? He wasn't around in the room when uh, king number one had his vision. He wasn't around when the first dream came to him. He's never around when God makes these big movements. And sometimes we have this feeling like we've got to create the movement. We've got to create the thing that's going to make the movement go. And a lot of times God is going to move in his time. And we need to be good enough to, to recognize that and say, hey, the winds are moving right here. God's moving. Maybe we jump into something that God's already doing. And he's waiting, in a sense, for that. He's not around when God makes his big moves, but then he's called into it to speak into the moment after God's already started it. And so I kind of lay this out. I mean, just think about this point. We live, Christianity is, is not the dominant influence of culture. There's a similarity between us today and what Daniel's living through. We watch things and we go, it's decaying. So Daniel's speaking to us. This book is speaking to us right now. And the next point I'm going to give you is this, is the reemergence of God's word. How does then God's word, the counsel of God, ascend itself back up into a culture where it's not dominant? Okay, so... Here's the observations as we go through this. Daniel is called in to speak. And what does he do? Number one, Daniel reminds us the value of remembering history. So as you walk through this, first he says, let your gifts be for yourself. But then he goes in verse 18, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And he goes on, as, as uh, Caroline already read, he's, he's giving him the history of his dad. He's giving it to him. He's saying, let's look back at history here and be reminded and learn from it. I mean, it's, it's a, haven't you heard the phrase, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it? We learn from history. One of the things we should learn is that God does judge sin in his time. Now, in this particular 
moment, what we're seeing is it's, it's specific to him and his father, but he's reminding him of everything his dad went through. Your dad, your dad was given greatness by God. And how, how did he, what did he do with it? How did he steward that greatness? He says in verse 20, he lifted up his spirit, was hardened. When his heart was lifted up, his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly. And then he was brought down from his kingly throne. Somehow, the greatness that God gave him hardened his heart in such a way that he began to judge and deal and rule with that hardness, that proud heart. He, he was affected by it. And so God had to humble him. And there's a way in which he's saying, see how God deals with pride? Look at the example before you. Know your history. Number two, Daniel warns us about profaning something of honor. This is what he says. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. You have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels. I underline that. The vessels are important of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk from them. If you praise gods, your gods. And he's telling him that you took something that God made for honor and you desecrated it. You violated it. How does God's word reemerge? It reminds us of these things. First of all, know your history. How does God deal with sin? Number two, uh, whatever God has made that's honorable, don't desecrate it. God judges that, and he rebukes his sin. At the end, he says this, and you have praised the gods, right? And he goes on to say, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. You haven't honored him. And I love the way he, he lays it out. This is the God who holds your very breath in your hand. These other gods that you honored, you desecrated and, and dishonored the true God, they're not even alive. But the God who controls your very breath and your ways, you didn't give honor. And here's, here's, here's don't over, overlook this too. One of the reasons he gives them the history then is to say, you saw what happened to your dad. You know the boundaries, and despite knowing it, you did it anyways. There is a premeditation then to his sin, to think through ahead of what the boundaries are, what God says no to, and then to choose to do it anyways is a whole nother level. You, you, it's a premeditated sin, Belshazzar, worse than your father. I gave you the example of him. And he is rebuking him. And I think one of the things about the reemergence of God's word into culture is we're going to find ourselves in a relationship where we say, this is what God's word says. By the way, the history of how God deals with this, it's right here. Oh, the boundaries, they're right here. And sometimes in those conversations, what comes out of that is we have to rebuke the thing that the culture is saying should be right because it doesn't match. And lastly, I put here the reemergence of God's word. We need to remember we are not judges. God is. It's God's word that judges. If you ever find yourself speaking in a way that's like judgmental, be careful. Do not judge lest you be judged. 
the Bible says, the standard that you're going to thrust out on someone else is going to be brought back onto you. We are not to be judges. What we're supposed to do is to take them to God's Word and let God's Word speak to them. God's Word, God and His Word is what judges, and this is what He does in verse 24. Then, from His presence, they, give, they, they, they go ahead and... and um, I'm sorry, let me read it. Then from his presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing. Many, many, tekel, parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So if this was like, if this, if this, I put them up there so you could see them. Okay, that's what, the, that's what the words mean. And then he's giving you the interpretation, the broader interpretation. Actually, in the, uh, the words themselves have a, a, a richer depth to them. The word there doesn't just mean weighed. It means you're falling short in the measurement of weight. It's like when I step on there and I'm hoping for this weight, that's another number's there. And he's putting himself before God getting weighed and you fall short of what it should be. But just to back up a little bit, you know, if, if, if we're in the room and a hand appeared and wrote on the wall English words, and the English words are numbered, numbered, weighed, divided, and people are like, what does this mean? And God brought someone in and said, this is what it means. Emphasis on numbered. Two times. Okay? Weighed. There's been a measurement, and you fall short, and because you fall short, divided, the kingdom's divided up. And this is God's word judging him. It has, it has evaluated him. He falls short. And basically, the God of the universe is saying to him, your time is up. Your time is up. And in, when we live in Babylon, the emergence of God's word into relationships, sometimes God's word is going to speak in a way that says it's, it's, going, to, it's going to judge the actions of people in their choices and how they're trying to live. So this brings me to the last point, which is God deals with a wicked world. See, there's a way in which you can live and watch the decay. And then you're saying, oh my word, where is this going? It's getting worse and worse. And what will God do? God just stop it all. Or God, you know, and this is the way we think. And one of the reasons the book of Daniel is given to us is to remind us that no matter how bad the decay, there is a God in heaven who sits on his throne, who sees it. And in his time, he acts. Now, I'm going to give you a couple parameters for when God acts at the end, but I want you to see this in this passage, 29 to 31. Belshazzar gave the command. Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom, that it, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. And I just put all the points up there for you to see, because it's all brevity. Brevity of man's wealth, brevity of man's life, brevity of man's power. I mean, in one sense, it's like everything he gives to Daniel is a sign of his, his wealth. What good is it? Because it's going to be gone in like less than 24 hours. You know, uh, what we have in terms of wealth doesn't last forever. And then 
the brevity of man's life. That very night, he dies. Now, I thought this was interesting because when the pandemic hit, I said, I need a book to read. We're well, stuck at home so much. I, I got this book. I often say that I really like World War II history. This is The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. Look how thick this thing is. Look how much was dedicated to writing about how this one nation collapsed. And I found it interesting. In the book of Daniel, Babylon is the greatest ever. It's the golden head. And it's power and might and beauty. And it gets two verses. Two verses. You got, this got a lot more. But two verses, and what does it say? It's just showing you the brevity of man and its kingdom, perhaps in how short is the very, that very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean killed. Darius the Mede took over the kingdom, right? And you see this. And I put here, by the way, just to, to, to give you the history, because remember the pride that they had in what they had built. This massive wall, Inside another wall, in between moats. Very, very difficult to conquer. Rations for, for 20 years stored up. A river that went under the wall, through the city, came out another side. How are they going to beat them? And that's why they had so much pride and they were thumbing their nose to God. Because the enemy's outside but we're, we're partying here because our confidence is in who we are. Here's our gods. They're a representation of our power and might and what we've built. Well, this is what they did. So the, per, the, the Medes and the Persians split their army into two groups. And, and actually, this week I read all this because it's recorded by historians. And, of course, it's translated into English. But they have a record of what happened. And they split the army into two, and they put one group around the river where it went under the wall into the city, and then they went and put the other group on the backside where the water went under the city exiting, and there are two main battle groups around the rivers and the wall. And then the people who weren't that good at fighting, they took them away, and they went farther away up the river to an area where it was kind of swampy, and they built a canal over time, and diverted the river this way so that the water level shrunk. And the record is this. The water got so low, it only came up to about mid-thigh on the men. And the soldiers, with all of their, their spears and swords and shields, walked under the wall into the city and defeated them. Now, the first thing you would think is, well, psh, wouldn't they even see this? And I would like have my army on the inside ready to get them because they're going to come in. It's like a choke point, right? But in the record that it says it was here and they went under, you know what else it says? That they caught them by surprise because the people in the city were drunk. And then I get to the Bible. Talk about accuracy. And the Bible says there's a party going on and they were drinking wine and they were thumbing their nose to God. Wow. History coming together with what God's word says in the account of it all. But in the end, the point that we make is that God deals with a wicked world in his time and in his way. And he let them come in under the wall and they defeated them. Well, we get to the end. And what I wanted to do was to give you, give you a thought here. Because there's so much about this book and even in this story that relates to us today. And I see things here 
where what, what I see in our culture today is like Babylon. So I made this slide called Like Babylon, and I want to show them. Number one, what do I see today that was like Babylon? Conformity to the dominant culture can matter more than integrity. And you, if you're a believer in Christ and you're living in Babylon, you may find yourself in the, in the culture. We're not the dominant culture. And it doesn't matter how good at the job you are and the integrity. You may not fit because your values don't fit with what the dominant culture is. We don't want them in the office because we hate on the things they represent. It happened to Daniel. It can happen. It is happening in the culture today. Okay? Number two. Doomed to repeat history in the same way that he was trying to tell him, look, this is what happened to your father. You ignored it. God's judgment is going to come. I've talked about the cycle of nations and the history that's there. The professor, this was a couple sermons ago. I'm going to recycle this, but I actually put it on a slide this time. So doomed to repeat history. The average age, yeah, go back to that. The average age of 200 years, this is the, the cycle you see in nations. <clears throat> they go from bondage to spiritual faith, from spiritual faith to great courage, from courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance, from abundance to selfishness, from selfishness to complacency, from complacency then to apathy. Apathy leads to dependency and dependency back into bondage. And I just think about America, you know, it, it's... It, it was known for liberty, the land of the free and the brave, and, and the wealth that came out of America. 5% of the world's population, and yet it enjoys 50% of the modern luxuries that characterize civilization. America is rich by comparison. What did we do with it post-World War II? Do you know after World War II, Americans started over 1,800 missionary agencies and sent out 350,000 missionaries to the world. That's what we did with it. But where are we now? Did you know that there's a shift in this? America is no longer the largest sending country of missionaries. You, you begin to see some of the shifting are we becoming complacent? Are we becoming so selfish, enjoying the, the wealth that has been brought to the country through the freedoms it has? Now, we need to be careful because as we look at everything that I'm talking about and we see the warning signs, in the same way that Babylon, the warning signs are there, we need to at least have that type of vision as we live in the culture. Because let me connect all these together. Because the next one is taking something of honor and profaning it. Now in Babylon, they took the, 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 the holy artifacts, brought them out, desecrated them, sacrilegious, right? These are things made of metals. What is that compared to what I see being desecrated? dishonored that God made with honor. And I'll give you a couple. The first is, to me as a pastor, the most valuable thing are people because we are made in the image of God. 
we reflect God in that way, even if we're an unbeliever and we don't believe in him, you still have been made in his image. Now, in several ways I see this. Since 1972, when they passed abortion law, over 60 million babies have been killed. Babies that are made in the image of God. And it continues. There's a cultural fight over that. But I look at that, and I see sometimes Christians worn out by that whole fight, and maybe it's not even on their radar. And yet, it's happening. And male and female, made in the image of God, that has honor in it. And yet we see a culture redefining that. Marriage, marriage, all the way back to the beginning, made and created by God. Marriage has immense value. And we see a culture lowering that value over and over again and redefining that. I mean, for me as a pastor, I look at this and I say, these are warning signs. These are warning signs because how long will God let these things go before he says enough is enough? I see an increase in tribalism where we, things like identity, identity politics, where we want to identify with specific groups and create division in, in communities that way. Where, as in Babylon, it used to be, we recognize this diversity, but there's still a unity of togetherness to, we're Babylonian and you're a Jew. And more and more, we see identity politics rising up stronger, urging people to identify with some specific subset as greater than the larger group. How about numbing ourselves with pleasure? Maybe you see a lot of this and you go, it's just too much. And I don't want to step out and take a risk because, you know, uh, I could lose something. So there's a way in which we can, I mean, in Babylon, it was wine and women and sensuality where we can ignore what's going on by just enjoying the good things that have come about through the freedom that we've had over time. Joy in wickedness. Now, this is the last one I'm going to give you on it, but do you, how, is your joy ever bothered? Where we live? By the wickedness of where we live? Even Lot, even though he was not effective, was troubled by the wickedness of the city. Daniel took no joy in the wickedness the way he responds, you see that. And I've seen an example of this just in the last week where what comes into question is where's your line? Where does your joy now start to become bothered? There's so much going on in the world. There's a, there's a war. There's, there's political fights and all this. And yet one news story is dominating everything. And it's about one actor going on the stage and slapping another. And everything that has come out of that for me as a pastor, it's actually been very interesting to watch because people have different opinions. I saw some actors say, he's defending women. I saw another actor say, I was sickened by it. You, you, you should not be allowed to go onto a stage and slap somebody for words that they've said. And then only moments later, giving a standing ovation to the same person that did that. Where's your line? I started seeing within that group, people had different lines. Like, so where's the line then where everybody would agree? Well, what if he went up and got several shots in? What if he threw him off the stage? 
Then would they have said, you know, this has gone too far. Would they have done more? What if he pulled a gun out and shot him? I mean, I hopefully, right? Everyone would say, oh, that's enough. You can't now. We're not giving you a standing ovation now. I mean, where's the line? And I think that this is one of the challenging aspects of living in Babylon. I don't think that even within Christianity sometimes we might be in different places on this. There are some people who would say the F words in the movie won't bother me. This last week we saw Disney come out and say that they have a stronger agenda now to weave into everything that they have the LGBTQ agenda. And they're specifically, a, 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 this is in opposition to the governor of Florida passing a law to protect children from kindergarten to second grade. We don't want there to be any teaching about sexuality in these age ranges, which to me, I agree with. Don't put that into the classroom of kids that young. And where, where is the line? You know, and now there's people saying, well, I'm going to boycott Disney now for that. Right? Where's your line? Some people said, I'm not boycotting them. There's too many things to boycott. We would live in always worried about, should we be boycotting everything? But what if you show up to Disney and they've gone so far that now the parades at Disney are gay pride parades? Like, where is the line? Like, you get to the point where like, if they shot him and threw him off the stage, that's too far for me. But the fundamental point that I'm making is that as a Christian, when you live in Babylon, you should not take joy in the wickedness and the greater the, that the wickedness grows is going to be a bigger challenge because a lot of Christians numb themselves to the increase of wickedness with the pleasures of this life and they're not applying themselves to God's kingdom enough. Like Babylon, we find ourselves living in that culture. Why doesn't Jesus stop all this? <clears throat> because the New Testament says he's waiting once he steps in and stops it, it's over. Anyone who doesn't know him will be judged. And he knows there are others who are going to come to a saving knowledge of him. Do you know if he doesn't return for 100 years still? Because I know people are like, oh, he's, it's got to be soon. It's getting bad. Could be another 100 years. Could be. It's hard to predict prophecy. Everyone who has has been wrong. And... That could be two to three more generations. Our children, our grandchildren are going to live in Babylon. And so we need to be thinking about diligence in our faith. You know, there's two scales. Just finish with scales. We started with scale at the gym. There's two scales in the Bible at the end. One scale is at the very end. And it says that everybody who ever lived, who rejected Christ will be resurrected and will stand there. Books will be opened and everything they did, every thought, every action, even if it was in secret, will be revealed and they will be judged by those actions. And the fact that they, they, they don't have the blood of Christ, that they put their faith in to cover that, where you could say there's no condemnation, there will be condemnation. But the other judgment, the other scale is for Christians. I'm a Christian. I won't be at the judgment I just described. The judgment for me is called the Bema Seat of Christ where I stand there and every investment I made, it's about stewardship, not about salvation. It's about stewardship. Everything that I've done is going to be put there before him. It's going to be tested by fire. And that which was done 
by the wrong motivations. I wanted the applause of men. I wanted the recognition, whatever. I wanted the, the pleasure I would get out of that is burnt up by the fire. And some people, Paul describes, it's like everything they did, they're still saved. But everything they did is lost in that fire and there's embarrassment and it's seen. In fact, the way it's written, it's almost like their whole house they built on fire and the only way they were able to escape it was to jump out the window and you can smell the smoke on them. You know they were a fraud in their ministry. They didn't leverage their life for the kingdom. They leveraged it for themselves. And I think one of the things that Daniel and Babylon teaches us is the calling to look at your life because there are warning signs. There is decay and God needs his people. He needs his church to leverage themselves for his kingdom. Save the city. Save the village. Save the island. If it does well, you do well. Leverage yourself for that. And my hope is that we will stir in the hearts of our church in greater numbers of Christians to do that here in Guam. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Daniel. I've said a lot here at the end, and really, Lord, it's just to, just to challenge us because just like in Babylon, there were signs that it's getting bad and God's going to judge it couldn't be more obvious than the army sitting outside the wall. And yet they're still so full of pride. And today in our culture, we can see signs and there are a lot of people full of pride. Those who we would wish to share the gospel with, sometimes they're full of so much pride. They're wise in their own ways, wise in their own counsel. Lord, I just pray that we could be a people that would represent you well, that we would consider the cost and leverage our lives better for the kingdom. If it's decaying, then... We need, at least need to be waiting like Daniel, having integrity, knowing there's going to be failure, knowing we'll be called upon, taking no pleasure in wickedness. May we, in that sense, be like Daniel. I just commit all this up to you. We give you praise, Lord, because you're a God who loved us. You sent your son. And I'm so thankful, Lord, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Help us to bring that message to greater degrees here in Guam, in Christ's name, amen. Let's stand and we'll worship together.